0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And this is the fourth of our Christmas messages we've been doing all December. Uh, The title for this one I put, Mary and Christmas. Not Merry Christmas, Mary and Christmas. And Mary, not in M E R R Y, but Mary M A R Y. And so this passage in Luke uh, gives us a unique perspective of the birth of Christ from mary's perspective through her eyes and through her experience as given in the gospel of luke and i thought that would be very appropriate uh, to see what scripture has to say about mary and her involvement in the birth of christ and christmas because for a lot of reasons some practical reasons and even historical reasons today they tell us that uh nearing one billion people on planet earth are catholic a roman catholic so considered to be one of the largest faiths or denominations or religions in the world. And so I was born and raised a Catholic for 19 years. That's common for a lot of folks. And at the heart of Roman Catholicism is what they have their own theology called Mariology. They have a uh, full-blown system of the theology of Mary and many things about her and many things I was taught about Mary growing up uh, that I taught, that I believed. And one of the eye-opening things for me when I started reading the Bible at age 19 was what the Scripture said about Mary was quite different than many of the things that I learned growing up from Catholic theology. So I thought it would be important uh, at the time of Christmas, what does the Bible say about Mary's involvement in the story of the birth of Christ and who was Mary and how did God use her? And um, Scripture makes it very clear and gives us clarity of thought on that. We need to think on things that are true and not on legend or man-made religion or mythology Because we know already Christmas is smothered out by so many things that compete with it and the meaning of Christmas, and we've been talking about that from presents and shopping and partying and reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and even more and more characters being created on and on and Christmas lights and all that stuff, some of which aren't inherently evil, but more and more compounded, they smother and hide the true meaning of Christmas which is really about Jesus Christ. Um, As a matter of fact, I saw an article this week in a major online newspaper and it posed the question, what is Christmas really about? Is it secular or spiritual? And their conclusion was, for the most part, it was a secular and cultural issue and tradition and should be disassociated from religion altogether. So uh, we know that is not true at all. The true meaning of Christmas comes right out of the Scripture. and, And one of the areas where... The true meaning of Christmas sometimes gets veiled or smothered or lost in confusion is what people think about Mary the wrong way at times for whatever reason, Uh, whether that information was passed on by word of mouth or through tradition or through the culture or maybe it's been a part of their formal religion that they were raised with. So uh, this story is just simple, it is beautiful, and Mary is at the center of it, at the center exalting Christ putting him in the appropriate place. Uh, I grew up Catholic, but then became a Bible-believing evangelical, born-again Christian at age 19, and as and started going to evangelical churches. So I became a Protestant. So if you're not a Catholic and you're a Christian, typically you're considered a Protestant. And so Protestants many times uh, are accused of having a wrong view of Mary, or uh, even a, they even have a minimized view of Mary, and sometimes can even overreact to wrong views of Roman Catholicism and totally downplay Mary even in an illegitimate manner and we can't go to either of those extremes because we're going to see Mary was a special woman of God one of the godliest women as far as we know that ever lived in terms of uh, special giftedness in her calling definitely the greatest or most privileged woman in the history of the world by virtue of being able to give birth to the Messiah so there are virtues uh to a lot about Mary and even to model, and we're going to see that uh, in this passage. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Mary and Christmas, the birth of Christ through the eyes of Mary. There is no outline in your bulletin, but I did come up with uh, three main points to kind of guide us through the narrative. This is a story, and I don't want to chop it up with a delineated, uh, complicated outline and mess the whole story up. It's just got beautiful, flowing simplicity, as a story that actually happened in history, and we want to keep it that way. But if you wanted to have kind of three hooks to hang your thoughts on in terms of the flow of it, there are three, and these are from Mary's perspective, and I'll give those to you up front. Uh, Point number one is going to be verses 26 to 35. And that's the key word there is revelation. The revelation of the birth of the Messiah. The revelation that was given to Mary that she would give birth of the Messiah so 26 to 35 is the revelation following that is 36 to 45 and that's confirmation is the key word it's amazing revelation was given to Mary and then God confirmed that great truth with the story that happens after that so confirmation regarding uh, the coming birth of the Messiah and then it closes in this section 46 to 56 and that's adoration so you have revelation confirmation adoration And this last part, 46-56, to Adoration, is Mary's response to this amazing, unprecedented privilege that she had to give birth to the Messiah, and she just uh, pours herself out in exaltation, worship, and adoration of God Almighty for giving her this wonderful privilege. So let's just go ahead, and we're just going to go through this story verse by verse as we are reminded once again from... Another perspective from Holy Scripture of the true meaning of Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ, Savior and King. So let's go ahead and start there at verse 26 through 35. I just want to read that section before we unfold it. Starting at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, John the Baptist is in her womb or her tummy at this point. And that's where it's picking up. John the Baptist would be the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. So now in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God." So this is the revelation. This is where God reveals to Mary that the coming Messiah, the long expected coming Messiah, for four thousand years had been predicted that He would be coming, that He would be coming through, uh, born of a woman. And now God reveals this in history that Mary is the one that has that high and holy privilege. So let's go back to verse 26 and just look at some of the highlights in this amazing story. In verse 26 it says, Now in the sixth month, and as I said uh, earlier in the chapter uh, of Luke chapter 1, is the story where Gabriel the angel... By the way, angels are all throughout the Bible, but very rarely is the name of an angel given. There are fictitious ones and ones that have come from legend in terms of names, but very few names are ever given in Scripture of angels. There's just a few. There's Michael. We know him from the Old Testament and the New, kind of the superhero angel, the tough guy. uh, As he's known, Michael the archangel. And Gabriel's another one. And he seems to be having a special task. As a matter of fact, it says in Luke 1.19, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And so what a wonderful privilege that Gabriel had to be able to apparently routinely stand as a servant in the presence of Almighty Eternal God forevermore and to always to do His bidding and to do His special service and apparently His special uh, messages that He would uh, be called by God to do in perfect obedience. And so Gabriel faithfully had just gone to uh, the parents of John the Baptist, uh, Zacharias the, the priest and Elizabeth, and Gabriel told them that even though you are both very old and Elizabeth is... Uh, barren and beyond the age of giving birth God's going to do a great thing God's going to do a miracle God's going to open up the womb of Elizabeth and she will be with child in his name and you shall name him John and he will be great and he will go before the Messiah and announce the Messiah and that will be his calling and his commissioning and so that revelation just happened to that family and they were blown away and they're incredibly blessed and this is called good news in Luke 119. So that's what Gabriel just did. Revealed this amazing news to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And it was very exciting. And Zacharias's immediate response was disbelief. Wow, I don't believe this. Seriously? I don't believe this. And as a result, he was actually punished for that unbelief. And God uh, told him, because of your unbelief, you won't be allowed to talk for such and such a period of time. And so he had to endure the consequences for a momentary lapse of faith. And so picking up 26 uh, with Mary's revelation of the birth of her child comes on the heels of that incident that just happened. Gabriel coming to Zacharias the priest and to Elizabeth telling them God's going to do a miracle and you are going to become pregnant uh, and you are going to give birth to John who will go before the Messiah and announce His coming. Absolutely amazing. Very exciting. And so we pick up in verse 26 now in the sixth month, So now it happened. Um, Elizabeth became pregnant in verse 24 of Luke 1. It says uh, that she kept herself in seclusion for five months. We don't know why, but she did. But we do know that for that five months of being secluded, she was giving a lot of adoration and worship to God. She knew the implications of who this child would be. And so she said, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me. In other words, God has blessed me beyond what I could ever ask for or think. And God looked down with me uh, with favor and He took away my disgrace and my shame because it was a very shameful thing for a woman who was married in those days to be barren, to to not have children. To be a, a married Jewish woman, one of the greatest signs of blessing of God in your life is that He would give you the gift of a child. The gift of pregnancy. The ability to become pregnant was considered a gift from God. Because it is. And so that's how Mary perceived it, rejoicing. And so now six, so five months in seclusion, another month goes by. Month goes by. And now she's six months into her pregnancy, so she's probably out to about here. So she is now noticeable. She knows the time is drawing near. Now in the sixth month, uh, the angel Gabriel, who was introduced earlier, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And so Galilee is up in the north as opposed to down south where Jerusalem, the capital city, is, where the temple is, where all things religious are supposed to happen and take place, where the Pharisees reigned supreme and the Sadducees and the scribes. So they considered that the holiest of all cities. And all any other city really was a worthless, menial competitor. And so the fact that The story says that in this city, and it's very specific, that in Nazareth of Galilee... By the way, Galilee was referred to in Matthew as Galilee of the Gentiles. And we know what a lot of the Jews thought of the Gentiles, non-Jewish people in the days of Jesus, especially the Pharisees. They thought the Gentiles, non-Jews, were literally dogs, unclean, dirty, not pure, didn't know God, and didn't deserve any of God's love or grace. So they had utter disdain for the Gentiles. And this city up in the north where there were some Jews living called Nazareth was in the greater region called Galilee. And Galilee was surrounded by all these pagan and Gentile cities and regions. And so that's why it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so a Pharisee in the day of Christ reading this that Nazareth was privileged to have this woman who would give birth to the Messiah would be utterly unbelievable and despicable. That is unthinkable. The coming Messiah certainly is going to come from Jerusalem or the surrounding area, but that's not how God would do it. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Not only is Galilee the area of the Gentiles and was despised by many Jews, then the city of Nazareth. It really wasn't a city. It says the city in the English text, really just a town. Very small town, speculating that there were just hundreds or even just a few thousand people that lived there. It was nothing compared to Jerusalem or larger cities. It was really an obscure town. It was kind of off the road, off the beaten path. It wasn't on any major road or thoroughfare where the Jews would travel. It was out of the way. It wasn't well known. It's not. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Think of that. So you're talking about this totally, for the most part, obscure Little town. And that's why in John chapter 1, uh, it said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? The Messiah is from Nazareth? Seriously? Where's that in the Old Testament? And so God sends, and that's how God works, right? He comes to the lowly, He comes to the down and outs, He comes to the outcasts to do great and wonderful things. Normal people. So Nazareth is just a normal town with normal people. And some of the normal people there are verse 27. Uh, Gabriel came to a virgin engaged to a, a man whose name was Joseph. So Gabriel comes and comes to this virgin. Then the Greek word Parthenos, it means virgin. It means a pure woman, a woman who's never had intimate sexual relations with a man. So this talks about her physical virginity. So in terms of that, pure, never known a man. And that was Mary's condition at the time. She was engaged to Joseph or literally betrothed to Joseph and to the best of our knowledge from some Old Testament uh, teaching and precedents and also from history in in the Jewish culture when Jews got married. They got married very young. So she's a young woman at this time. We don't know how old Mary was at the time, but probably in her early teens that would not be abnormal at all in that culture. So here she was engaged as a young teenager. She was betrothed, and then they had a betrothal or engagement period that was very specific. It was usually about a one-year period. Many times it was arranged by both parties and parents involved. And it was a time of testing. The couple would not live together. They wouldn't have intimate uh, physical relations with one another. It was strictly building the relationship, looking to the future, a time of testing, preparing for marriage. And after about a year of the engagement or betrothal period, If all went well and there was purity and it was maintained, then they would actually have a seven-day wedding feast and then the culmination with the consummation of the marriage. That was just a traditional uh, Jewish marriage. And so here is Mary, uh, and she is betrothed or engaged to Joseph at this point. We don't know how far they are into the betrothal process, but this is a time of purity and abstaining from one another, but cultivating a relationship, preparing for marriage. And no doubt Mary is very young at this time, but the key is she is a virgin. She's never had any relations with any man. And so Gabriel goes to Mary as a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And so both Mary and Joseph are descendants of David. That is huge. That is key uh, that it's in there because de- being a descendant of David meant that they had a kingly or royal lineage. And this goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised... Saul and the fa- the family of Saul and the family of David that the Messiah would come through their line through their lineage. And so we have Matthew chapter 1, we have Luke chapter 3 that traces the genealogy of both Mary and Joseph establishing that they are both descendants of David and they their child had the right to royalty and the right to the throne. And so Jesus was the literal son of Mary A descendant of David. And Jesus was the legal adopted son of Joseph, who had the legal authority and legal right for kingly uh, lineage. And so Jesus inherited both of those. He is the rightful king of David. That's why this is so important, and it's mentioned there that both of them are descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, and coming in. So, and then apparently Gabriel goes into her house. So maybe she was in her little really a uh, small, unimpressive home there in the Galilean village in the city of Nazareth. And there's an intruder, and his name is Gabriel, and is an angel, and he comes in. And earlier in the story, if you go back in Luke 1, when Gabriel came to Zechariah, he, he scared Zechariah. Zechariah was afraid, he feared, he was overcome, he panicked. And that's what angels do all throughout the Bible. Whenever an angel appears to a human being, that human being is scared practically to death. It is routine. And that would happen to every single one of us for a couple of reasons. It is instant. It is spontaneous. It is unexpected. It's an alien being from outer space. And not only that, the angels of God are sinless, perfect, and pure. And when a sinner is in the presence of that which is sinless, it is overwhelming because of our guilt and our sin. So there's a lot of things playing into that. Fear when confronted by an angel of God. They are holy angels. And that's what Scripture calls them. And Gabriel is no exception. He is a pure holy angel sent from God and then comes instantly into Mary's little home and she's probably there all by herself. And like Zacharias, she would be afraid. She would be troubled at the spontaneous appearing of this supernatural angelic being that's never happened before in her life. And So as a result, Gabriel goes in and coming in he said to her instantly, greetings! So that's kind of a a cordial formal greeting and a friendly one to put people at ease. Greetings! So he knew she'd be afraid and He wanted to calm her with this very gracious greeting. Greeting, and then uh, our English text says, Greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, in my English text, it says favored one, which is a legitimate translation of the Greek word here. This Greek word is used only two times in the New Testament that I could find. Right here, favored one. And also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. So if you want to... Uh, Put your finger in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. I want to look at that verse. Because uh, the New Testament was written and finished uh, before the first century was over by 95 A.D. And it was written in Greek, the New Testament was. And then a couple hundred years later, if not 300 years later, uh, it was written into Latin uh, centuries later. And in the Latin version of the New Testament, uh, this phrase... Favored one, which is actually a Greek, one Greek word, was translated into the Latin New Testament, gratia plena, and that's literally full of grace. Full of grace is the phrase. Greetings, the one full of grace. And so that carried over eventually that Latin phrase into the prayer that we call the Hail Mary. And if you're a Catholic, you know the Hail Mary. As a matter of fact, if you were Catholic, you probably have the Hail Mary memorized. Hail Mary, full of grace. That phrase, full of grace, did not come from the Greek New Testament. It came from the Latin translation centuries later. And it was infused with meaning beyond what Scripture intended because in the prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, the way that's interpreted is that Mary was graced more than anybody in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, she had inherent grace she had innate grace she was born with grace in a way that no other human was save christ himself as a matter of fact she was born without sin so says roman catholic theology and one of the key phrases they look to is this phrase right here full of grace when actually all uh, the angel is saying is greetings favored one now let's go to ephesians chapter one this phrase favored one doesn't mean that she's Uh, greater than any other person that ever lived. It doesn't mean she was sinless. It doesn't mean she had inherent grace. It doesn't mean that God was impressed with her because she was sinless. What it means is God bestowed on her favor. God gave her grace that she didn't earn that she didn't deserve. And she was actually no different than any other Christian whom God bestows grace on. And that's why I wanted to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 because this exact same word Is used in reference to every other Christian who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, we could literally say you are full of grace. And you could write, I mean, they could have written a prayer about you, but that would be illegitimate, that would be idolatrous. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, His great work, and who He is, and what God did through Him as the uh, as the Savior. And in verse six of Ephesians one, it says, "To the praise of the glory of God's grace, which God freely this grace from God that comes through Christ, God freely bestowed. God gave this grace. God is the origin of this grace, of this unearned grace and undeserved grace, which God freely bestowed on us, Christians, in Christ." So the same word is used there. We are full of grace because God, God gave us that grace by virtue of our salvation in Christ. So in other words, Mary is just a normal Christian. She's a, she was a normal believer. She was no different than you and I of those of us who believe today. She's not to be elevated up here and exalted and put on a, a pedestal of marble whatsoever. She's just a sinner saved by grace. But God did favor her and God gave her grace. And the Lord was with her in a very unique way. She loved the Lord. She was born and raised in a Jewish family. She was born and raised in uh, learning the Hebrew scriptures. She had part somehow in the synagogue, was taught the word of God. She loved the word of God. She believed in Yahweh. She knows the Lord, at, even by an, as an early teenager, because a couple of times it says the Lord is with you. And, and we know from her worship later on that she knew Yahweh and loved him and was a believer and was rooted and grounded in Scripture. And Scripture just oozed out of her when she spoke and when she prayed. And we're going to see that. So this was an incredible, godly, young, teenage Jewish woman that what God was going to use. But at the same time, a normal, teenage, fallen, sinful woman that God would use in a mighty way and so the angel comes in and he says to her greetings favored one the lord is with you but she was very perplexed this is an emphatic term she was disturbed she was greatly disturbed greatly disturbed sometimes even translated fearful even confused and she was confused at the statement greetings favored one the lord is with you confused by that statement. And so she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. It's kind of interesting at different points in Mary's life as she, different incidents happened to Jesus as he was before his birth, as he was born, as he's growing up, as he's dedicated when he's 12 years old. Luke keeps inserting this phrase that when Mary heard that, she kept pondering that in her heart. She was locking it away in the back of her mind. Wow. I don't know if I understand the full significance of what that angel just said or of what God just said or what Simeon just said or what Anna just said or what I just heard or what Jesus just did. But she locked it away in her heart for contemplation, for meditation, for prayer to see the unfolding plan of God and how it might be fulfilled in her lifetime. She was a very contemplative, godly, careful woman in her thinking about the truths of God. And so that's what that represents. She locked that away in her heart, even though she was perplexed, pondering, didn't know what this meant, but she knew it was significant. In verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. And angels, many times they say that to the humans they're talking, do not fear not, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That doesn't mean she's blessed more than any other human or better than any other human because many... Believers throughout the ages have found favor with God. So that's just really a kind of common phrase that God has blessed you. God's going to use you in a unique way. God loves you. He has graced you. And He's about to do great things. In verse 31, and behold, and behold, get this. It's an emphatic phrase. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb. Okay, at this point Mary was a virgin. She'd never had relations with a man. And this angel says, You will conceive in your womb, you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Matthew also says that the angel told Joseph that Mary would have a son and his name would be Jesus. So both Mary and Joseph were told by God to name this child Jesus. Jesus comes right out of the Old Testament. Yeshua or Joshua. And it means God saves or Yahweh saves. Your son is going to be named God saves. Your son is going to be named the Savior. Really. Really. Startling. Amazing. Verse 32, and then he goes on with details about this this Jesus that she would give birth to, this, this son. No doubt keeping in mind, Mary not having video games or television or technology that we do and all the stuff that distracts us and consumes our time didn't have much growing up as a kid and as a teenager. And one thing they had were the Hebrew Scriptures. And she spent a lot of time, probably like other Jewish people, studying the Scriptures and memorizing the Scriptures, and their faith was central to all that they did. So Mary, no doubt, had the entire Old Testament readily available in her mind, especially of paramount and important prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah, and especially at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy ever given about a Messiah who would come and conquer Satan and be the Savior And that He would come through the loins of a special woman, of a descendant of Eve, of a real female. The Messiah would come. I wonder if Mary was thinking of Genesis 3.15 when she heard this. Or Isaiah 7.14, that great prophecy that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Could very well be. As the angel reminds her of this great truth, you're going to give birth... To a son, his name will be Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. Not only that, then the angel gives her three things about this coming son that would be fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime the first time. And then uh, three things that would be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. Quickly, here they are. The fact that his name would be Jesus when he was born. And that's exactly what happened. Then verse 32, this Jesus, he will be great. He will be great. He will be the greatest as the God-man. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High is a technical phrase referring to God the Father as the Sovereign and Supreme One of the entire universe. The fact that He is called the Huios or the Son of the Most High means that this very Son is going to share the same nature as the Most High God. That is a declaration of His deity. I wonder if Mary caught that when she first heard this. This would be mind-boggling. He would be the God of Man. Now we know Mary understood some of the implications of that in her conversation with Elizabeth later. and That's who He would be. And then regarding what He would do in the future, at His second coming, the Lord God, verse 32, will give Him the throne of His father David. That hasn't happened yet in fulfillment. Jesus literally, someday, is going to sit on a literal throne on earth and reign as King of the earth. That has not happened yet. He has the rights to king. He has the rights to rule. He rules in the hearts of people spiritually. But literally, this is going to be physically fulfilled in the future to a T. Jesus is going to reign on earth as king with a scepter. And that day is coming. And He will reign as a son of David. Verse 33, another thing. Uh, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He's going to reign over the nation of Israel. That's where His capital will be. Where will be this throne of, of Jesus where He reigns? It will be headquartered in Israel. Jesus is going to reign on a throne in Israel. It's literally going to happen. Scripture is clear. It is replete through the Old Testament. It is in detail in the New Testament, especially in Revelation and even right here. This Messiah hasn't finished His work yet in terms of His reigning that will happen on the earth. And also another thing that will happen... In the future he'll reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever and his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom of ruling as the king will go on from this life. It'll last a thousand years will he reign as king on the earth and then it will transfer over into the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus will reign as king for all eternity. That's how the history of the world ends. And the history of the world doesn't end. It goes on and on eternally with Jesus Christ as reigning king. This is not mythology, this is truth. Isn't it amazing? Absolutely amazing! This is the Christmas story. So that's who this Jesus will be. That's who your son will be. Boy, that's a lot to take in for a 13-year-old teenage girl. All in one fell swoop. Not being prepared for this. That's, as a result, verse 34, she says to the angel, "How can this be? How can this be?" Why does she? She's not doubting. She wants further information. That's different than Zechariah, who doubted. She didn't doubt. She knew there was a logical, human, scientific impossibility. I'm going to conceive and give birth to a son. I'm only 13. I'm betrothed. I'm engaged. Uh, I'm going to marry this guy in about a year named Joseph. We haven't been together. I am a virgin. Virgins can't conceive. That's humanly impossible. And that's why she says to the angel, how can this be? I am a virgin. This is called the virgin birth. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her. And so he gives her the answer. He gives her more information. Well, here's what's going to happen, Mary. This is how you are going to conceive in your womb and give birth to the Messiah. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, whatever that means. And the power of the Most High, the Most High is God the Father, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That same word overshadow uh, is used in the transfiguration of Jesus when the, the fullness of the glory of God Almighty overshadowed the disciples that were with Jesus at the time of His transfiguration in Matthew 17. It's the same word or picture used in the Old Testament in the days of Moses where God's glory came down and overshadowed the tabernacle. It refers to the full presence of God that can be manifestly seen with the human eye. It speaks of all of His amazing supernatural glory. So the Holy Spirit is involved in the virgin birth, and God the Father is involved in the virgin birth. And for that reason, this holy child... And that phrase is very specific. The child will be holy. The child will be sinless from birth. Unlike any other child ever born in the history of the world. Every single one of us came into this world born with a sin nature. That's Isaiah 51 verse 5. We are born dead in our sins. We are born enemies of God. We are born children of wrath. We are born with the curse of Adam. This one would be unique. This holy child. This pure and sinless child, the God-man. So the entire Trinity is involved in this supernatural, never-to-be-duplicated virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He would be born of a virgin. No human father, that is humanly possible. It had never been done prior to this. It's never been repeated, never will be replicated. It is a miracle reserved for the God-man, Jesus alone, and it speaks of His unique character as the God-man, as the Savior of the world. To deny and to reject the literal virgin birth of Jesus Christ is to deny and reject one of the most fundamental and cardinal doctrines of biblical truth. To understand it, that's a different story. It's a mystery. It's beyond human understanding. But she said, how can this be? And he gives her an answer in verse 36, and behold, Uh, so let's go on from there, um, transition to the sixth point. So that's the revelation of the coming birth of the Messiah. And on the heels of her question, how can this be? And I'm a virgin. God, how are you going to make this happen? And then he refers to this supernatural birth that the Holy Spirit would be a major part of allowing her to conceive. And then he gives her further evidence. This con- he confirms that she indeed would give birth, as the angel said, to the coming Messiah. And so there's, let's go from the revelation to the confirmation, picking up in 36, going down to verse 45, as the angel continues to... Talk to Mary, answering her question, how can this be? I'll tell you how it can be. It's going to be a supernatural virgin birth. Just as uh, Matthew says Isaiah 7 14 predicted. And furthermore, God is in, Mary, God's in the business of doing unbelievable, amazing miracles. You know that. You're Jewish. You were raised on the Hebrew Scriptures. You believe those miracles literally. You believe that the world was created out of nothing. You believe in the exodus exodus, that God performed for His people. So Mary knew God, Yahweh, did miracles. And so Gabriel confirms this truth all the more, practically speaking, starting at verse 36. And he said, and behold, and furthermore, get this, Mary, you know your cousin, your relative, that lives down in the area of Judah and Jerusalem? You know your older relative, Elizabeth. Granny, Granny Elizabeth. Who's never had a child, who's barren, who can't have children? Get this, Mary. She's pregnant. Imagine that, somebody telling you that your 94 year old grandma was pregnant. You'd, you'd probably, whoa, heart attack. Seriously? No way. And that's what's going on here. And that's why he says, And behold, behold me, you're never going to believe this. This is amazing. This is a miracle of God. Get this. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son. Get the, in her old age. Her womb was dead, and the God of life gave it life. That's the answer to your question. How can it be, Mary? God does amazing miracles to accomplish his purposes. Elizabeth was also conceived a son in her old age, and she was, she who was called barren is now, get this, in her sixth month of pregnancy. And here's a great, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, verse 37. For no, this is the angel who says this. For nothing is impossible with God. God can do whatever He wants. Let me say that again with the qualification. God can do whatever He wants that is consistent with His nature. In other words, God can't do anything contrary to His nature. God can't sin. God can't make a rock so big that He can't move it. That's stupid. Nothing is impossible with God. The point is, this is Yahweh, the God of miracles, Mary. That's how it's going to happen. And it's going to be a miracle with you and a miracle with somebody else in your own family. This is good news. Nothing is impossible with God. Get this, verse 38, Mary said, Behold, behold, she believed. She did not doubt like Zacharias. Behold, wow. The bond slave, the due loss, or the due laid, the slave, someone who considers themselves in abject slavery with zero rights of their own. The most humble a person can be, the lowliest a person can be, the most undeserving soul on planet Earth. That's how Mary identifies herself here. The greatest of humility. It's not the Queen of Heaven, as we're told sometimes. It's just the opposite. She is overwhelmed with God's grace and this miracle. And she says, Behold, the slave of the Lord. I am the slave of God. That's a declaration of faith. May it be done to me according to your word. She believed the word of God at first blush. That's a godly woman. Mary wasn't perfect. Mary wasn't sinless. But she was a godly woman. She was a woman of faith. She heard the word of God. She didn't need an argument. She heard the word of God. She didn't need a whole bunch of... Archaeological proof. She heard the word of God and she believed God at His word. What a precious thing! What a simple faith. God honors that kind of faith. I believe it. It'll be done according to Your word. And the angel departed from her. He finished his business. And now at this time, so at that very, at some point during that time, very shortly thereafter, God answered this prayer, fulfilled this miracle, and boom! Jesus left the glories of heaven, took on somehow human. Form and entered into the womb of Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit at that very moment. And then Mary became pregnant apart from a man. And now Mary was pregnant with the Messiah in her womb. Verse 39, And now at this time Mary arose and in a hurry she went to the hill country. We don't know if she went by herself, but if she did, that was dangerous for a 13, 14-year-old young Jewish girl all by herself traveling up to 60 miles, a three to four day journey, in a hurry, on the fly, unplanned, spontaneously, through dangerous territory. But she trusted God. And she went in a hurry to the hill country of the city of Judah to go see her cousin, to go see her relative Elizabeth. The announcement of this amazing miracle. And so she made it. She made this three to four day journey. She entered the house of Zacharias and she greeted Elizabeth. Went up and gave her a big hug. Who knows how long it's been since they'd seen each other. Verse uh, 41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb. So uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with baby John the Baptist in her tummy. Luke chapter 1, verse 15 says this about when Elizabeth became pregnant and conceived with John the Baptist in her womb. God says... For he, John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he, it's referring to him as a person while he's in the womb. He's not a glob of cells. He is not a fetus. He is a person. He will be great. He will drink no wine or liquor. In other words, he will be a committed Nazarite dedicated to God. Get this, in the womb. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That is amazing. John the Baptist was a person and filled with the Spirit of God The entire nine months, he was in the womb of his mom. I don't understand how that happens, but it tells me that the baby is a person in the womb. So you go back to verse 41, and so here's Elizabeth with little Johnny in her tummy, six months old in the womb. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's John the Baptist inside the womb, leaped in her womb. This is a supernatural activity that's happening. This isn't just the normal gyrations that are going on with a six-month-old baby inside mommy's tummy. This is a reaction from John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Spirit in the presence of Mary, and actually in the presence of Mary, who was pregnant with the Messiah, whom John the Baptist would be the forerunner of. Here, for the first time, the cousins are introduced. And John the Baptist is as excited as can be inside the tummy and leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now being six months old in the womb, we don't have any idea of the consciousness of John, but the fact that some kind of supernatural spiritual reaction happened is without a doubt. And the key is that Elizabeth was also filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God was doing something unique and different. Verse 46, and she cried out. No, she did more than cry. The word means she shouted. So Elizabeth shouted with a loud voice at the top of her lungs. It was time to celebrate. I don't care what the neighbors think. Shh, honey, keep it down. No, I don't care. There are times to shout and yell and scream in praise of God Almighty and what He's doing. She cried out with a loud voice. She didn't care who heard her. And she said, Blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You are blessed by God because of this, because of the great privilege you have to give birth to the Messiah. And not only that, uh, the seed inside your womb, the Messiah Himself is blessed by the Father. Blessed are you, Mary, Special grace given to her to fulfill this commissioning. This isn't saying that Mary is without sin, or that she's better than any other. She's just incredibly privileged. She's a sinner, saved by grace, totally undeserving, and she has the privilege to give birth to the Messiah into the world, <clears throat> into the world. Unbelievable. Verse 43. And how has it happened, Elizabeth goes on and asks this question, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord Key phrase, Mary is not the mother of God. You may have heard that. You may have not thought a lot about it. You may have actually believed that. Mary is not the mother of God. That phrase is never used in the Bible. It's never used in the New Testament. It was never used by the apostles. Mary is not the mother of God. God has no beginning, God has existed for all eternity. He's the creator. No one created him, he's always existed. God doesn't need a mother. Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus as a person has always existed. Jesus was never created. Jesus came down from the world or from the heavens. He came to the world that he created and took on a human body for the first time through Mary. But Jesus has always existed. God has always existed. And that's why Mary's not the mother of God. That's not a biblical phrase. It's misleading actually but elizabeth does call mary the mother of my lord jesus was called and recognized the lord during his three and a half year ministry because he was the lord he was god in a body so that phrase lord brings together jesus's humanity with his deity that he is the god man and somehow elizabeth recognizes that jesus is going to be more than her own baby john the baptist john the baptist he's just a man There's going to be something unique about your son, Mary. He is the Lord. And it could be that they had a spontaneous conversation and Mary told Elizabeth everything about what Gabriel had said and who he would be and he'd be the son of the Most High God. And that sunk in very quickly for Elizabeth and she believed it. Wow! You're going to give birth to the Lord, to the Messiah! So another great woman of faith, believing miracles that are incomprehensible. And as a result, she says... How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me and bless me with your presence? Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, Mary, the baby in me, John, the baby in me leaped in my womb for joy. Verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, And blessed is she. Mary, you know what? You are blessed in a unique and special way, that you would believe immediately this amazing miracle because my husband, Zacharias, he didn't believe and he God shut him up for three months. We couldn't talk. He had to write everything down. Who knows if that's what she was thinking, but that's implied in light of what just happened. She had this beautiful, sweet, simplistic faith to believe God and His Word. And her older, her older cousin recognized that. So that is the confirmation. God does this sweet little favor for Mary to confirm this great reality all the more. I'm going to send you to your older godly uh, cousin. She's going to minister to you. Because we know that Mary stayed there for a couple of months with her her cousin. And was blessed by one of her spiritual mentors at this very important time in her life. So after the revelation of the, the coming Messiah and after the confirmation of this miraculous birth, let's go ahead and close with this. Adoration that Mary is just overwhelmed with what has just happened and what she's privileged to be a part of, and as a result, she gives God her due, and that is worship, adoration, and exaltation. Mary worships God, and so let's go ahead and look at this prayer briefly. It's called uh, verse forty-six to fifty-six is a prayer that Mary says. It's been uh, my English Bible says calls it the Magnificat. I just think of the cat I had when I was in high school when I read that. The Magnificat? What does that mean? That is not an English word. It's a Latin word. The New Testament was not written in Latin. So that means nothing to me. What is the Magnificat? Well, several centuries after the New Testament was written, it was translated from Greek into Latin. And they took the word exalts, a Greek word, and it was translated into Latin, and then that Latin word is Magnificat. So that's where it comes from. It's just the prayer of Mary that she prayed in worshiping God Almighty. So let's go ahead and look at Mary's prayer briefly. And this, We can adapt this prayer really as our own in many ways because of how she worships God, keeping in mind that she was a believer. She knew Yahweh. She was raised on the Scriptures. Uh, she has the Scriptures running through her blood. She's probably under the influence of the Holy Spirit when she prays this prayer or writes this prayer. So it is an inspired prayer coming from the heart of Mary. If you examine the words of this prayer, 46 to 56, there are over 30 different references or allusions to Old Testament Scripture, including from the Torah or the Pentateuch, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. Mary knew the entire Old Testament, or unless God just gave her this direct revelation. But every one of these phrases virtually can be found somewhere in the Old Testament, but it's put together in a unique way that becomes a personal prayer of Mary exalting, adoring, worshiping her God, the only one who is worthy of worship. There are no competitors. The triune God and He alone is the one that deserves worship. And Mary knows that and that's what she does. Notice throughout the prayer, she doesn't exalt herself at all. She doesn't call people to adore her or worship her or pray to her. She knows that she is lowly She's undeserving. She's indeed a sinner. She is a sinner. That was one of the greatest revelations that I came to realize when I was 19 reading my Bible that Mary was just like anybody else. She was a sinner in need of a savior. She was in need of grace. Let's go ahead and look at it. Here's Mary's prayer. She says, My, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Or God had regard for me, despite the fact that I was a lowly, worthless, undeserving slave. That's the literal word at the end of verse 48, or the middle, a slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, or generations, or my generation, or all the people living in my day are going to count me blessed. Not that I have virtue in and of myself, but that God was gracious to me. I was undeserving. And that's been turned on its ear, unfortunately, and people give Mary, adoration and veneration for what she doesn't deserve. She was just a sinner saved by grace. And that's what she means here. She knows this. She knows her identity. She knows she's a sinner unworthy and undeserving. Verse 47 is explicit. I exalt in the Lord. I worship the Lord. I praise the Lord. Present tense, by the way. This was her ongoing pattern of behavior. Mary was a worshiper of Almighty Yahweh. She knew the Lord intimately and personally. And her, her worship was pure because it wasn't external. This is a total contrast to the Pharisees of her day, the religious experts. They were all about the external, the superficial, the hypocritical, the man-made religion. The heart of Mary's religion, and which makes it pure and a model for us, is she says, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The emphasis is on the internal and that's what Jesus said. Anybody that wants to worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. He was emphasizing internal worship, worship from the heart. And that's what Paul says in Philippians. The true mark of a Christian is someone who worships in the spirit of the Lord, in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit. It's not external. It's not a checkoff list. It's not a to-do list. I go to church 42 times out of the year and here's my goodie pile and I'm earning my favor and my way to heaven. This is the very opposite. This is a true devotion and a personal relationship with God who is Spirit. And that's how she worshiped her God on a regular basis, spiritually, internally, from the heart, with joy. And she worshiped God whom she called her Savior. That is an admission that she is a sinner. And we need to hear that. Mary was a sinner. She was born sinful. She was born separated from God. She needed the grace of God to intervene and save her soul during the course of her lifetime. And God graciously did that. And she realized that she was a forgiven sinner who didn't deserve the grace of God. She needed a Savior. And that's the irony. I need a Savior. And she's giving birth to the Savior. She's giving birth to the Son that would save her soul. Isn't that amazing? And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of me, a lowly slave, deserving of nothing. For behold, for this time and all generations, people are going to count me blessed. And we need to count Mary blessed, but we need to do it in the right way. Not exalting her, but realizing how God blessed her even though she didn't deserve it. And then verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Holy is His name. All the focus in Mary's prayer is on the glory of God and Him alone and on Jesus and God's holiness and His preeminence. And that's what we need to do is put all of our focus on God and God alone. No human, no saint, no dead Christian. God and God alone. The Father and Him alone and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Verse 50. Now she transitions in her prayer from talking about her personal blessing and then she puts her focus on God and His character and the things that He has done. And so she rehearses that and gives reasons for why she worships Him. Even quoting from Old Testament verse 50. And She says, and His mercy is upon every generation after generation toward those who fear Him. God's mercy, that means uh, we deserve His wrath and He withholds His wrath out of His love and His mercy. That's the character of God. And Mary knew that God withheld the wrath that she deserved for being a sinner as He was gracious to her. Verse 51, she goes on about God's great work. He has done mighty deeds with His arm, with His power. And she's referring to Old Testament Scripture. God has all throughout history done amazing deeds for His people. And once again, He's doing amazing deeds for His people. He's sending a Savior to save Israel, to save the world. And He's doing it through me miraculously. And God has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their heart. Verse 52, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. Here she's giving the key to true and pure religion and it has to do with the attitude of the heart and it is humility. The enemy of humility, the enemy of true worship is pride, human pride. Human pride, the book of Proverbs is clear, is the enemy of true faith. It is destructive. It will destroy like nothing else. God puts a premium on human humility. He despises and opposes those who are proud in heart. It's a theme of all of Scripture. Mary knows that. That is the key to true, pure worship. She knows she needs to be humble before a holy God. And God routinely casts down those who are proud in heart. He'll have nothing to do with them. And it's not till somebody has broken down and has been humbled that He'll attend to their prayers. And he exalts the humble and lifts them up in his time. Verse 53 God has filled the hungry with good things. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's gracious to all. He doesn't just provide for those who are Christians, He provides for the whole world in an ongoing manner. This is the common grace of God to all people. He's the great creator. He's the great provider. He is faithful to His creation. He is a good God. And He sent away the rich, empty handed, those who are self sufficient. They don't need a God. God says, fine, you don't need me. Try to live without me. But I'm going to attend to those who need me me and know that they need me. Verse 54, she goes on with the the good attributes of God. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Uh, Mary was a Jew. Mary knew that God made a irrevocable promise to Abraham the first Jew in Genesis chapter 12 where God promised that He would bless Israel, the nation of Israel. He would, he would bless them all throughout eternity, or actually all throughout earth history and through eternity. Israel in a unique way would always be special to the heart of God. That hasn't changed. God still has a special place in His heart for the nation of Israel. And He's going to fulfill that commitment to them in the future according to the book of Revelation. God has not abandoned Israel. And it was through Abraham and through Israel that God would bring the Messiah. And it was through the Messiah who came through Israel that the Messiah would bless and save non-Jews as well Gentiles. That's the new covenant. So anybody here sitting here who is not Jewish but is a Christian has been blessed by the Abrahamic covenant through God's working through the nation of Israel through that Messiah who came to be Savior of the world and so Mary knows her Old Testament. She knows God's plan and how it all began and the promises that he made and the promises that he's going to continue to keep that have yet be fulfilled. They'll be fulfilled to a T and that's how she closes her prayer, giving God all the glory that he deserves. Verse 56, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about another 3 months just before John was born. It was time to go home and get away from the crowds and then she returned to her home. Well, that's the preparation of the Christmas story through the eyes of Mary. With that, I want to close with Revelation chapter 5. Where in Revelation chapter 5, we're reminded of who's to receive all the praise, all the glory, all the adoration, all the focus at the time of Christmas. It is Christ and Christ alone, along with his Father and the Holy Spirit, who represent the one true living God, the triune God of the universe. There are no competitors. There shouldn't be any distractions. And this should be the prayer of your heart if you're a Christian. So Revelation chapter 5 will close with this. This is a view of heaven, and this is still going on in heaven, by the way. If you were to have the veil peeled back and you were allowed to see heaven as it is, this is what it would look like. God the Father is there. Jesus Christ is there in glory. The Holy Spirit's presence is there. The glorious, sinless angels are there. They are around the throne of heaven. They they are ceaseless in their praise for the triune God of the universe. Verse 9, and this is what they sing out continually. Worthy are you, as they're worshiping God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Spirit who is around the throne. Worthy are you to take the book, and now they're talking to Jesus the Lamb, to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. Men or people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then John the Apostle says, And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels up in heaven around the throne and the living creatures who were also angels and the elders up in heaven. And the number of them was myriads and myriads. That means countless. Too many to count. Thousands and thousands. And here's what they were saying and here's what they are still saying today up in heaven. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's Jesus. He's worthy of our worship. Verse 13, And every created thing in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, that is Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. That is the meaning of Christmas. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for the privilege To be with the local church, our spiritual family, fellow saints, gathering as You have commanded, that we might be blessed to encourage one another, to be taught from Your Word, to worship You. And we've had that great, high and holy privilege today. God, remind us of these wonderful truths from Your true Christmas story and that we would reflect the heart of Mary who gave soul devotion to you and that we'd be focused on the true meaning of christmas jesus christ and his glory and the wonderful savior that he is we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 Zero 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 nine.